Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. I'm Mary Maté. How's it going, Katie? Good. It's a nice fall day. And once again, there you have your Useful Idiots official weather report. Yeah, you got it. You're welcome, yeah. everyone. Yeah. yeah. Crisp. It's crisp. Yeah, we'll be doing this uh, all year. All year, yeah. What do you? What's your favorite season, Aaron? Well, everyone says fall, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm gonna have to go with the crowd and say, yeah, I like fall too. I like fall dressing. Like I like the way I dress in fall. I like fall attire, but I actually like summer the most. I get kind of down when it turns into fall. It's a little depressing. Mm. I hear that. Yeah. I didn't know there was such a consensus though around fall. Oh, everyone says fall because they're like, oh, yeah. like my fall sweaters and my little fall right. jackets, you know, right. and the leaves. Go the leaves. Leaves, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you're living in L.A. or something. I guess, right. I'd rather. Blue, I like matter. greenery more than dead, dried, desiccated leaves, though. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so I'm pushing back on the fall consensus. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Well, I like it. It's a new movement. Yeah. But also, it's like school's out. Fall is school's back. Not that I didn't like school. I just, you know, I liked, I liked freedom. I, well, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm making a really strong case for Yeah, it is a very strong case. I mean, how could you be against freedom? Yeah, exactly. All right. I'm never liking fall ever again. Yeah. Fall stands for imprisonment and stifling. Yeah. yeah. Summer's liberation. Yeah, exactly. It's treasonous, actually, to, to like fall. Mm -hmm. How many weather reports are giving you that kind of insight? Yeah, get philosophical and personal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not that many, yeah. Which is why we invite you to, of course, support this show, make it happen, make it possible. Give yourself the gift of amazing extra content like extended interviews and Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness. We also do the Absurd Arena, which is where you can chat with us live on Substack. And to find all of that, go to usefulidiotspodcast.com. And boy, are you going to want to do this soon? Because if you join right now, you get to join at the $5 a month level. And pretty soon, we're going to be raising it to six. Now, don't worry. If you're already a supporter, you're locked in at that level. But uh, Wilson, when are we raising the price? On October 1st. Okay, guys, time is ticking. Gotta lock it join. in. Lock, lock it, it in, in now. Yeah. Lock it in. Act lock, fast. It, lock, and, lock it in. Lock, lock and load. Yeah. I've always wanted to say act fast. I've never act had any, fast. I've never had any opportunity to say that. So act fast, everybody. Act fast. Yeah. These prices are insane. <laughs> All righty. And we have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking to someone who's making his Useful Idiots show debut, the wonderful Bryce Green. Yes. We'll be talking about all the latest media craziness around the proxy war in Ukraine. And there is so much to get to and looking very forward to speaking to him. But for now, let's go to our four basic food groups. Democrats suck. Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? For Democrats suck, it recently was a very special occasion, the International Day of Democracy. And our democracy defender, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, had this to say. Democracy depends on the free and open exchange of ideas, including online. On this International Day of Democracy, I call on governments around the world to protect citizens' access to information that allows them to make informed decisions. That is so touching. Unfortunately, maybe he forgot that his government is currently overseeing the persecution of Julian Assange, trying to extradite him to the U.S. for the crime of giving the world access to information about U.S. government crimes. And so as a important reminder, President Lula of Brazil 
got up at the UN General Assembly and spoke out for Julian Assange. It is essential to preserve press freedom. Journalists like Julian Assange cannot be punished for informing society in a transparent and legitimate way. So that's Lula da Silva of Brazil reminding the U.S. that it is overseeing the persecution and torture of Julian Assange and that if you pretend to care about democracy and free expression, you have to let him free. And uh, during the same week that this is happening, a group of Australian lawmakers are visiting Washington to press for Julian Assange's release. So it does seem as if there is some momentum shifting toward Julian's freedom. We'll see if it goes anywhere. But what a better way for the Biden administration to show that it has some remote concern for free expression um, than by letting Julian Assange go and yeah. dropping this whole case. So embarrassing. And those uh, Australian representatives, it's a bipartisan group. So everything from left to right, because they realize that it has nothing to do with party affiliation, whether you support a free press. Absolutely. And we'll see what kind of reception they get in Washington. There have been increasingly some more lawmakers willing to speak out for Julian Assange. It took them a while, but the members of the squad, for example, have recently signed on to calling for his freedom. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Oh, and speaking of which, I have with me, opening it up fresh from the mail, this free Assange lovely tote bag. Okay. Okay, now I see his face. At first, I thought it was Trump in profile. I'm not going to lie. That thing in black, I thought was Trump in profile. All right, there it is. That'd be awkward. That'd be awkward. Really awkward, yeah. uh, Among other things, Trump is the president who oversaw the initial charges against Julian Assange. Yeah, I thought it was Trump, a weird thing. I thought Julian Assange's right eyebrow was Mm. like a microphone for Trump. Mm. Mm. But that's not the case. That is just Julian Assange's face. So, um, yeah, Stella Assange had these made up. Uh, his wife and the mother of his two children. And you can follow her at Stella underscore Assange. So free Assange, everyone. All right. What do we have for Republican suck? So for Republican suck, let's hear some interesting words of wisdom that Trump dropped at a concerned uh, women for America summit. They're bad at policy. They have no idea what they're doing. They have open borders. They have no voter ID. They don't want voter ID. I saw on a television one of these characters. There shouldn't be voter ID. Now you have voter ID to buy a loaf of bread. You have you have ID to buy a loaf of bread. You have. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. His argument for voter ID is that you need ID to buy a loaf of bread. Which <laughs> breaking news for people who don't do their own shopping or have never left the house: you don't actually need ID to buy a loaf of bread. In Trump's defense, he's probably never bought a loaf of bread. Right. Of course. Yeah. This is the problem when you're an out of touch, you know, gazillionaire is sometimes you have to talk about things that relate to people's normal lives, like the normal life of average people. And then you have these crazy ideas of what normal civilian life is like. You have no idea what it's like. So in this case, (laughs) the idea of having voter ID makes perfect sense to him because he has no connection at all to normal reality. Yeah. And of course, voter ID laws disenfranchise uh, the most marginalized members of society. That's why uh, Republicans like it. They want to be harder for people to vote. But maybe his mind would be changed if we just let him know that actually you don't need ID for bread loaves. Maybe he'd be like, then we shouldn't have it for voting either. 
Or maybe this is what we should start doing. And the next time I buy a loaf of bread, I'm going to show my ID. Yeah, it's true. In solidarity. Yeah, in solidarity with Trump's theory. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you think Trump gets his bread? Do you think every, he just comes in and like his office is furnished and his home is furnished? Well, first of all, I thought he only ate like Big Macs. So oh, right, yeah. maybe that's his only source of, of yeah, bread. That's true. Apparently he does love McDonald's or something. Or yeah. Fast food. So maybe so that's his source. Bread of, loaves uh, never come up. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's, true. that's how he gets his carbs. Yeah. To keep him on his feet. All right. So that's my Republican self. What do we got for Isn't That Weird? We're going to look at uh, the Empire State Building, towering symbol of New York City. And it's gotten a special makeover to honor the brand new COVID shot. The Empire State Building was lit up in what's being called Pfizer Blue. Check it out. Wow. There it is. <laughs> the Pfizer Blue. If you want to avoid the impression that we're dominated by big pharma, you probably don't want to light up a you know, major landmark in the colors of a huge, giant corporation that is right. very, very controversial. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, I got to say... It's a great it's a great gag because it really does the Empire State Building now looks like a big needle. <laughs> it does look like a big needle. And this is all about a new shot. So Yeah. Yeah. But then is Moderna going to get upset? I mean, what about That's their true. colors? Yeah, what are their colors? And do they get a day? Yeah. 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 What do you think? And the, John- and the Johnson and Johnson, I mean, everyone everyone made fun oh, of that right, vaccine. Yeah, right. So they're not getting anything. They, won't, Moderna, they don't deserve it. Yeah. Moderna, yeah. yeah. I wonder yeah. if they have like, so there's a Pfizer blue. Is there like a Moderna mauve or something or Moderna magenta? Let's see it. Let's see Let's it. Let's see it. If Pfizer got it, let's give it to Moderna as well. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. All right. Well, for Isn't That Terrible, we have a truly terrible story. Uh, it takes place on a plane. You've heard of snakes on a plane. This isn't snakes on the plane. This is uh, diarrhea on a plane. And trigger warning to everyone. Uh, So what happened is a Delta plane flying from Atlanta to Barcelona was forced to turn back because the passenger had diarrhea literally all over the place. And uh, there's actually video, there's audio. Uh, Here you can hear a pilot uh, explaining why he has to turn the plane around. Negative. It's just a, a biohazard issue. I, you know, we've had a passenger who had diarrhea all the way through the airplane, so they want us to come back to Atlanta. So it's a biohazard, guys, because they had diarrhea all the way through the air the airplane. This wasn't contained in the bathroom. So there's actually footage that really trigger warning because you're going to see some of this stuff on the bottom. Aaron, you probably don't want to see it. I'm giving everyone the chance to maybe you know what? Maybe we put this in the Thursday Throwdown. Because I don't, at the very end, we'll put at the very end of the Thursday throwdown, because I don't want people to not be able to watch the rest of this show. So it's going to be at the very, very, very end of Thursday throwdown after we thank you for watching Thursday throwdown. Okay. And what an incentive for you to sign up and subscribe exactly. to the show. If you yeah. sign up uh, as a subscriber, you get to see footage real, of diarrhea. I mean, what, what better, yeah, yeah. What better enticement is there? Yeah, yeah. It's the shit, guys. Okay, so back to the program. That was your four basic food groups. Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? We are so excited to be talking to Bryce Green, a writer and contributor at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, otherwise known as FAIR, a great, great website. Uh, His work has been republished in numerous other outlets. He also co-hosts the Devil's Chess Club podcast with Aaron Good. You can find him on Twitter at the Green BJ. That's G R E E N E B J. Welcome, Bryce. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks for coming. So we have 
so much to talk to you about because you've done so much really important work exposing, especially exposing uh, propaganda, uh, especially when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. So I want to start out by asking you about your latest uh, article at FAIR, Hyping Ukraine Counteroffensive, U.S. Press Chose Propaganda Over Journalism. So can you set that up? And then we have some videos we can look at that you mentioned in the article. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I wrote this piece because as soon as you started hearing talk about a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive, there was an article very early on in April from the Washington Post. It was part of the Discord leaks story. Uh, And this it was a leak from intelligence uh, intelligence files uh, that showed that the U.S. intelligence community didn't actually believe that the Ukrainian counteroffensive would amount to much of anything at all. And, and this was bolstered by uh, the Post's original reporting, which uh, they talked to U.S. officials who said that the intelligence report was actually confirmed by a classified DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency report, that said similar conclusions. In addition to those two reports, we also saw uh, the Post talk to Ukrainian officials who said that the intelligence report was mostly true and that uh, Ukraine had a a well-known problem of ammunition shortage, low morale, and other things that would contribute to the failure of this upcoming counteroffensive. Now, despite all this, uh, this was in April, as I said, uh, despite all this, there was a lot of coverage hyping up the counteroffensive in the weeks and months after that report. And curiously, that report wasn't really mentioned. Uh, So you had people going on TV, going on cable uh, and writing articles about how this Ukrainian counteroffensive was supposed to turn the tide for the war, you know, kind of the triumphalist rhetoric that we've been hearing throughout the entire war. Uh, But they weren't mentioning the fact that even U.S. intelligence did not believe that the counteroffensive would amount to much. Uh, So that right there is just journalistic malpractice. And they do it because it's a propaganda system. These journalists in the West, uh, in America especially, have decided that they are on the side of the Ukrainian armed forces and that their role is akin to public relations officials. Uh, So you have, you know, airing Zelensky talking about how the counteroffensive is going to succeed. You have, you know, Lindsey Graham being quoted uncritically talking about how the plans that he's seen are impressive. And the list goes on and on and on. You have so many uh, you know, retired generals coming out of the woodwork to say, oh, yes, oh, yeah, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going to be a big success. Just wait and see. Uh, but again, it ignored the actual reporting. And it's not like the Washington Post is some fringe operation that no one reads. Anyone covering the Ukraine war has almost certainly seen that article. They've almost certainly read it if they're you know reading mainstream coverage of the war. Uh, but they chose to ignore it. They decided that this is not important for our readers, for our viewers, for our listeners, uh, for anything. And I think that's a a pretty serious indictment of the American media system as the case with most aspects of this war. And it's pretty striking that uh, it doesn't really get talked about much. And the tragedy is they claim to be on the side of Ukrainian forces, but what are they ultimately advocating? They're advocating that all these uh, soldiers get sacrificed because they know they're sending them in, even though they have a poor chance of success. And that was admitted after the fact, after the counteroffensive started faltering. Then you had all these stories saying, oh, yeah, well, we knew that they didn't have the proper training and equipment uh, and preparation to succeed, but we thought maybe they had a chance. And by the way, we never would have launched an operation under the same circumstances because, of course, you need 
air power to do something like this, which Ukraine did not have in relation to Russia's air power. So after the fact, they admit, oh, yeah, by the way, oops, we kind of knew that we didn't have what we needed, but let's cheerlead these, this march to death anyway. And of course, we had U.S. officials fearing that Ukraine was being too casualty adverse. Exactly. I mean, you literally had U.S. officials telling the press that Ukrainians uh, don't want to die, and that's a problem for us. They, they said that they were reverted to old habits rather than pushing forward. Uh, it's it's pretty telling when you look at the stated justification for U.S. support for the war. You know, if you believe the marketing material that's put forth in uh, in the mainstream press, you look at the statements of Blinken and and Biden and Newland and all those, uh, you know, those goons in the Biden administration. Well, they'll tell you that, well, we're here to fight for democracy and save the territorial integrity of Ukraine and fight for the, the people of Ukraine so that they don't get uh, you know destroyed by Russia. Uh, but right. then you look at their actions. Every action they've taken has been to increase the likelihood that Ukraine gets destroyed, increase the likelihood that an entire generation of young Ukrainian men gets completely wiped out and dissatisfied with their with their uh, country. And if you look at the policies of the weapons that they're deciding to send, I mean, uh, cluster munitions, those things are going to be around in the Ukrainian countryside for decades to come. And then you have the depleted uranium uh, that's you know, it is known to cause birth defects. We're still seeing birth defects in places like Iraq, uh, Fallujah, especially. Uh, but the Biden administration has decided that uh, that doesn't matter. We want to, uh, you know, use as much firepower as we can to, quote unquote, in the words of, uh, you know, Secretary of Defense, former Raytheon executive uh, Lloyd Austin, the goal is to weaken Russia. And if your goal is to weaken Russia, then you really don't really care about what happens to the Ukrainian people. You guys have talked about this in the past, but, you know, using Ukraine to fight Russia uh, and always to the last Ukrainian. That's been the mantra of the the U.S. uh, officials and the U.S. establishment since even before this war started. I mean, you had people talking about how it was beneficial to the U.S. to provoke this war uh, by refusing to negotiate. Uh, One article I keep returning to, I've cited it several times, is a Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed from John Denny, who is a fellow at the Atlantic Council, which is, you know, a NATO brain trust think tank. Uh, And the the article is called The Strategic Case for Risking War in Ukraine. And he lays out the case, you know, pretty rationally, pretty obviously. He says the U.S. shouldn't negotiate with Russia over, you know, NATO expansion, over missile placements, troop placements, base placements, uh, things that obviously are in Russia's legitimate security concerns. He said the U.S. shouldn't negotiate on that because one of two things could happen, and both of them are good for the U.S. One, uh, Russia would back down uh, from its troop placements on Ukraine's border, which would make them seem weak on the world stage. It would make them seem toothless after uh, building up uh, multiple times on Ukraine's border, only to have nothing happen, only to have none of their demands be met. Uh, and that would be beneficial to the U.S. because they get to point at Russia and say, "How look at how weak they are. Uh, if that didn't happen, then Russia would invade, which, according to Denny and others, would also be good for the U.S. because it would allow the U.S. to impose crushing sanctions on Russia, you know, taking a, a shot at a main, uh, you know, geopolitical and economic competitor. It, it would also allow the U.S. to give Russia its own Vietnam, to give it a quagmire. 
the U.S. would, uh, you know, fund a lot of troops to uh, make sure that the Russians get bogged down and they lose a lot of men. Now, that's beneficial to the U.S. And the third reason was that a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a major propaganda victory for the U.S. It would strengthen the pro-NATO consensus around Europe and even offer the opportunity to expand NATO to uh, places like Sweden and Finland. Uh, if we look at what actually happened since the war started, all of these things came to pass and more. Now, we can talk about how uh, there is a degree of you know backfiring this plan has. I mean, Russia and China are closer together and the BRICS bloc, you know, Brazil, Russia, China, India, South Africa, they're coming together uh, in a way that's almost unprecedented on the world stage and pushing back and using rhetoric that denounces uh, American unipolar hegemony. Uh, so that might have been an unintended consequence of NATO planners, but the fact remains uh, they didn't care about the fact that Ukraine would get destroyed in this whole process. Right. They didn't care that the cities would be leveled, that their people would uh, you know, be being slaughtered. They didn't care that obviously in wartime, democracy suffers. That's just a, a natural fact. And uh, there was an excellent piece by Bronco Marchetich in Jacobin talking about how the state of Ukrainian democracy is not strong. I think I got that title right. And it's going through the fact that, well, you know, opposition parties have been banned. There's an increase in political violence on the ground in Ukraine. Media has been consolidated under the government. Uh, is this democracy? Is this the, the uh, you know, the liberty that you claim to be fighting for? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, but, you know, as we've been saying, that doesn't matter to Western planners. Uh, in fact, it's that doesn't even factor into their calculations. All they care about is overextending and unbalancing Russia. And you have some videos uh, that you link to in your article. So let's go to this video in which uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is talking to Richard Engel of NBC. We are now in the early days of this long anticipated counteroffensive. How's it going? I cannot give you all the details. There are both defensive and offensive actions. Things look not bad. I would say it's generally positive, but it's difficult. Our heroic people, our troops, who are now at the front of the front line, are facing very tough resistance. And you understand why. Because for Russia, to lose this campaign to Ukraine, I would say, actually means losing the war. So that's Zelensky speaking to Richard Engel of NBC News. Bryce, you point this out as an example of how we were misled from the start of this offensive about how it was going. Right. Uh, this clip is from June, mid-June, uh, as the counteroffensive, uh, you know, rhetoric was, uh, you know, heating up. You had Engel talk to Zelensky without even mentioning the, the reporting about how U.S. intelligence didn't anticipate that this offensive would go well. And, you know, it, every reporter understands that whenever a leader in wartime gives an interview to the press, uh, their goal isn't to adequately inform people about what's really going on. Their goal is to, you know, push the propaganda line. Uh, that's true for Zelensky. That's true for you know, Biden it was true for Bush during wartime. Uh, so they know exactly what they're doing when they refuse to ask any tough questions and bring up inconvenient facts. Uh, they just air this stuff uncritically and they uh, they know that their audience will get the impression that the counteroffensive is and will be successful. It's there's no other way to put it. Uh, it's 
just what it's it's what they're doing and it's obvious yeah and we have another video that you uh linked to in your article and this one is with retired u.s army lieutenant colonel alexander vindman who's talking to msnbc's ali velshi is what you said to me i'm trying to think of how many months ago on our air where you said this this can't this war can't be done six weeks in you know in six weeks installments at a time everybody's got to commit the weaponry that they are prepared to commit and let's see what happens so this ukrainian counteroffensive is a proof of concept right it's a okay we gave them a lot of weapons can they do something differently with those weapons than they could before we gave the, to the, the weapons to them I think that's true to a certain extent. Uh, we shouldn't overstate uh, what we actually provided him in total. It's actually not as much as you would think. And it's all it's all kind of in thin slices uh, coming in relatively late. Uh, wouldn't it be fantastic if uh, Ukraine had those F-16s earlier or those Bradleys or tanks earlier in the war where they would have them, you know, all the kinks worked out, have had a chance to kind of test the, their formations, integrate all these capabilities. And, and he's exactly right. This war kind of uh, being supported in piecemeal has extended it. But in fact, he's also right that Ukraine is going to be successful. Uh, the, the, the pace of that success is tied directly to the kind of foreign aid it gets in return. But I think that this is likely to be a, you know, we're off to a slow start uh, with some fairly significant setbacks. Uh, the Russians are taking losses. Ukrainians are making gains. But we're, we're off to a start two weeks into a, months-long campaign. I do like the admission where he says that the U.S. Uh, weapons pace is prolonging the war. That's actually some candor there, which is, which is true. But uh, in terms of his prognosis, uh, his predictions for the counteroffensive, again, the same complete distortion of reality. Right. Uh, you know, he said that Zelensky is right uh, to say that Ukraine is going to win, is going to be successful. And he also noticed that he says that the only thing that would limit the success is the supply of U.S. weapons. So here you have this, you know, propaganda machine saying how much that the U.S. needs to uh, spend on Ukraine. It's it's pretty obvious what they're doing. Every time you have a Ukrainian uh, setback, you say, well, they didn't get enough weapons. Every time you have a Ukrainian victory or uh, any sort of gain that they can spend that way, oh, well, you say, look. Our success uh, or our support is leading to success. Uh, it's kind of tautological uh, about uh, the, the policy here. What you will never see here is people questioning the wisdom of this policy. What you'll never see is people saying, uh, well, ag again, bringing up the fact that U.S. intelligence agencies don't believe uh, that the counteroffensive will uh, succeed in cutting off the Russian land bridge to Crimea, which you know has been the stated goal. And, uh, you know, it's funny if you look at um, I think it was David Ignatius in The Washington Post shortly after the, that Discord leak story. Well, he 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 wrote that. Well, he kind of hoped that uh, Ukrainian courage and determination would be the, quote, X factor that would determine the, the victory, uh, which is, you know, kind of giving the game away. He says, um, uh, I'll quote it in full. He says, hope is not a strategy. Uh, Ukraine's will to win, its determination to expel Russian invaders from its territory at whatever cost, might be the X factor in the decisive season of conflict ahead. Uh, so this is writing a few days after that Discord leak story was published. So it's kind of running, uh, running cover for it. Uh, but well, he's saying, you know, he's saying so, so hope is not a strategy, but yet here's some hope. And that's yeah. what I'm going to rely on. 
And it's so easy to hope for someone else's courage to prevail when you're not the one on the front lines. It's very easy to say, I hope these people who are sacrificing their lives, I hope they prevail. Let's, you know, let's give them a thumbs up. And that's exactly that's what it is. And what's worse is that the Wall Street Journal uh, in July, after it became like pretty clear that the counteroffensive wasn't going to uh, push as far into Russian lines as they hoped, uh, you know, they said it pretty clearly. They said uh, uh, Western officials, quote, hope Ukrainian courage and resourcefulness would carry the day, uh, <laughs> even though uh, they had acknowledged now that Western officials, quote, New Kiev didn't have all the training or weapons from shells to warplanes that it needed to dislodge Russian forces. So after the counteroffensive fails, that's when you start seeing the uh, the actual reporting, the actual serious analysis that the Western officials who backed this war, who backed this counteroffensive, didn't actually believe uh, that it would succeed. It's pretty criminal. What matters is not whether we had a reasonable expectation that they could succeed based on the equipment and the training they had. What matters is that we hope they would prevail no matter what. We had right. hope. We had hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. Yeah. So let's go to some more recent admissions. Uh, this was said recently by the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, who was talking about the period before the war. And he blurted out what we've been saying forever, which is that a major factor in this war was Russia's desire to stop the uh, march of NATO expansion to its borders and that Russia had put out offers to try to address that. And had NATO seriously taken that up, possibly this war could have avoided. Well, Jens Stoltenberg of NATO pretty much admitted the exact same thing. So here he is. President Putin declared in the autumn of 2021, and he actually sent a, a draft treaty that he wanted NATO to sign to promise no more NATO enlargement. That was what, what he sent us. And that was, that, that was a precondition for not invade uh, 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 Ukraine. Of course, we didn't sign that. The opposite happened. He wanted us to sign a promise never to enlarge NATO. He wanted us to remove our military infrastructure in, in all allies that have joined NATO since 1997, meaning half of NATO, all the Central and Eastern Europe. We should remove NATO uh, from, from that part of, uh, of our alliance, introducing some kind of E and B, or second-class membership. We rejected that. So he went to war to prevent uh, uh, NATO, uh, more NATO close to his borders. He has, he, he has got the exact opposite. So he admits it. He blurts out exactly what critics of the proxy war have been saying forever, which is that a major factor in this war was Russia's desire to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO and to reduce the threat of NATO on Russia's borders. Because as he mentions, Russia didn't want a complete dismantling of NATO. But what they propose is that in all these states that joined NATO after 1997, where the U.S. oversaw this huge expansion, this huge expansion spree of NATO, that in those states, that their NATO military infrastructure, which can be used to strike Russia, that that be rolled back. And rather than even discuss that, try to find some maybe some middle ground. So maybe Russia wouldn't get everything it asked for, but at least something. NATO just blanketly refused anything. There was no no even room for negotiations. And, and here we are. Exactly. You know, it's astounding the amount of crap uh, both you and myself and all the NATO critics and critics of the proxy war have gotten for suggesting that NATO w- expansion was a root cause of this war. You know, yeah, people you're Putin- flat out did- Putinists. Yeah, yeah. Putin apologists. You're just repeating Putin's talking points. 
Well, now these are Jens Stoltenberg's talking points. These right. are NATO talking points. Now we're, Stolten, we're Stolten, Stoltenbergists. Stoltenberg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what's interesting about the 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 period, uh, you know, August and winter of 2021, is that, you know, this was when the Russians had built up uh, their forces on the Russian border or the Ukrainian-Russian border. Uh, and uh, like Stoltenberg said, Russia kept saying, hey, we should negotiate. And uh, what's funny is that the U.S. actually did start to negotiate. They started going to the table. They actually talked about missile placements. They said, hey, you know, we can maybe discuss that. Uh, and then the Russians actually, they said publicly that, no, yeah, we, there actually seems to be some major progress on this front. But then when it came to NATO expansion, the U.S. said, no, 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 no. We maintain what's called an open door policy which you know translates to we're going to put missiles on your border. We're going to put NATO troops, NATO bases, uh, installations on your border, whether you like it or not. But it, uh, the, I think the, the, the darkly funny part of this is that the U.S. did say that they were going to offer uh, a verbal promise not to expand NATO for the next few years in Ukraine. A verbal promise. Well, if you know anything about the history... Right of, uh, you know, U.S., uh, NATO, and Russia relations is that this all started by a broken verbal promise uh, between uh, Gorbachev and the, and the U.S., uh, you know, the not one inch east. Now, this has been a contentious subject for some of the people who like to uh, promote Ukraine side. They say that, oh, Gorbachev never, prom never uh, uh, agreed to anything and the U.S. never agreed to anything. Uh, but, you know, uh, scholars who have looked at the documents in multiple language, I'm specifically thinking of Mary Sorodi, who wrote the book, Not One Inch East. Uh, she says that uh, it, it seems to be exactly the case that the U.S. used the ambiguity of the moment to push for its own interest over the interests of Russia, over the recommendations of even its own people from uh, George Kennan, the architect of the strategy of containment during the Cold War, to Henry Kissinger, who warned against NATO expansion. I mean, it's pretty clear that uh, the, the a verbal agreement offered in uh, you know December of 2021 was nothing less than a slap in the face to Russia. They said, oh, oh well, well, we'll promise verbally. We won't write anything down, but we'll promise right. not to expand for the next couple of years. It, and it was ridiculous. Even on the issue of what Gorbachev was promised back in the early 1990s, even if he wasn't promised anything, the question is, is that a wise policy to expand a hostile military alliance to Russia's borders, uh, alliance that was created to combat the Soviet Union, but now is expanding even though the Soviet Union no longer Doesn't exists? Exist, right. So it, it, even if Gorbachev was never got a single promise at all, which I, I don't believe, I do believe he was right. promised. That's what the record shows. If he wasn't, it's still not wise. And, you know, on the going to December 2021, right before the Russian invasion, it's interesting. So you raised the that episode where, okay, so NATO said they wouldn't talk about anything. The US though, as you point out, did have, did have a little bit more flexibility and said, all right, we're not gonna talk about NATO expansion, but we will talk about the placement of offensive weaponry uh, on Russia's borders. We can talk about that. And the reason why, a big reason why that was such a big deal is because Donald J. Trump, in all his brilliant wisdom, had dismantled the INF Treaty, which had eliminated an entire class of intermediate range weapons that can strike each other's territory, right? So that allowed for the redeployment of these weapons. So Russian asset, what, yes, exactly. Trump. The Russian, yes. And me, so while Trump was doing that, 
the media here was claiming he was doing Vladimir Putin's bidding was right. a Russian air. So his boy, genius, his boyfriend. Yeah, genius all around. But anyway, so so when Biden said, okay, we can talk about offensive weapons, there's this episode that I believe the only person in the U.S. to point this out is Ray McGovern, who we, we've had on the show. He's a former uh, career CIA analyst. Uh, worked, specialized had, in Russia. Specializing in Russia, the Soviet Union. And he pointed out that initially uh, on – in late December, there was a call between Biden and Putin, and the re- the Kremlin readout of that call said that Biden had given a, a a verbal promise that the U.S. has no intention of deploying offensive weaponry inside Ukraine, and that was seen as encouraging that okay maybe these talks between the U.S. and Russia can actually get somewhere, and we can avoid a war. But by February, by mid February, so right before Russia invaded, the Kremlin was saying. We tried to bring that up again, uh, this issue of deploying weapons inside Ukraine that can strike Russia, and we've gotten no response. So if the Kremlin account is correct, that means that Biden went from saying on a phone call, yeah, we're not going to deploy weapons, offensive weapons inside Ukraine, to the U.S., then even dropping that as well. And Ray McGovern is the only person, I believe, who's pointed this out. And I've seen nothing from the U.S. side about this. No no one's contradicted the, the Russian line on this. So it appears that even after Biden brought up the possibility of some kind of commitment on that, that the U.S. abandoned that as well. Exactly. It just underscores the point that the U.S. political establishment had no intention of stopping what they kept warning was coming, a Russian invasion. Right. And, uh, you know, even it's even an open question as to how far in advance Putin planned to invade. I mean, shortly after the war started, uh, The Intercept's James Risen, who's plugged in with the intelligence community, uh, he, he he reported that the decision to actually invade Ukraine was made mere days before the actual invasion, uh, which if you look at the events that led up to, you know, February 24th, the invasion, uh, that actually holds some weight. I mean, you have Zelensky's speech where he talks about, uh, you know, uh, abandoning the uh, policy of non-proliferation. Uh, and he also, this is even acknowledged by the, you know, OSCE, the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, uh, is that strikes from the Ukrainian side in the Donbass region, the disputed eastern part of Ukraine, uh, they began to intensify starting on February 21st, uh, you know, as the U.S. was and, saying. And also Zelensky would not even speak to the leadership of the Donbass rebellion. He wouldn't even talk to them during that same period. And, and these were at the talks to finally end that civil conflict. And at that point, he wouldn't even speak to them. So he's not talking to the leadership and he's apparently intensifying shelling of their territory. It's certainly doing a lot there to encourage a war. It is. Exactly. Like if, if the U.S. had wanted to avert a war, they would have said. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. That was a great interview with Bryce Crane, and we will link to his Substack page and his Twitter for more. I really recommend his work if you want to try to cut through the fog of uh, U.S. war propaganda. It's really, really great stuff he's doing. Yes, and to see our full interview with Bryce where we talk about uh, Ukraine more and we show a really scary video of a Ukraine uh, army spokeswoman and also get into the Chinese quote-unquote spy balloon, you can do that at Useful Idiots podcast.com. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. See you next time. And don't forget to join now. Lock it in at that low rate at $5 a month. Act fast. 
Act fast. Good job. All right. Bye, Bye everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 